Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England podcast, episode 191, The Reign of Richard III. I have mentioned the Agora Podcast Network many times, and this month's featured podcast, should you choose to accept it, is Alison Gerlach's The Unapologetic Capitalist. The podcast is all about building a business, so if that's what you're trying to do, you can find it in the normal places, or go to unapologeticcapitalist.com Now then, last time, before all the excitement of the prize draw, we heard about the Rebellion of 1483, often referred to as Buckingham's Rebellion. But to be honest, maybe it should be called Margaret Beaufort's Rebellion, since it was well underway before Morton persuaded Buckingham to take part. But what about the rebels? And what about the consequences of the rebellion? Buckingham had fled for hiding when his army fell to pieces on the 15th of October with just one servant, Ralph Bannister. Now, Ralph was clearly a canny lad with an accurate understanding of the difference between the buttered and the unbuttered side of bread. And before you could say butter knife, he'd tipped the wink to the sheriff. Buckingham was taken to King Richard at Salisbury and he begged to see the king. He begged to see his old friend all the while bravely pouring out the names of the men who'd been accomplices with him in rebellion. But Richard was having none of it, and Richard would not see him. And therefore, in the market square in Salisbury, Buckingham was executed, his head struck from his body, his final resting place unknown. Interestingly, his son was to later claim that his father had a knife with him to take his revenge upon Richard, but the truth We'll never know. Now, Margaret Beaufort had been caught 
bang to rights, red-handed, fingers in the till, exposed for the determined schemer that she was. But it took the far less fastidious Tudors to introduce the practice of executing women. The medieval tradition was still very much in play, and Richard made no move to execute her. A mistake, probably, in retrospect. But he could do without any further outrage, I suppose. So her lands were confiscated, but they were given in trust to her husband, Thomas Stanley. She was placed in her husband's custody, to be isolated with no servants. But Stanley, meanwhile, was the new golden boy, rewarded for his loyalty by being made constable of England, along with further grants of land and castle. It's an interesting situation, this marriage of Margaret and Stanley. Later in life, of course, Margaret was to retreat and set up her own household, though it appears that Stanley visited her. Did Stanley know what his wife was up to in 1483, or did his wife sneak out to the garden shed while he was kipping and send secret messages? And when Stanley had his army together, did he always mean to be loyal? Or did he see the rebellion collapsing and make a late decision to stay with Richard? Though it has to be said, he and Buckingham were hardly best of chumps so Stanley may have had no great desire to see Buckingham's power further enhanced. Anyway, when they got home and Margaret's servants were supposedly banished, unsurprisingly, the surveillance Thomas put on his wife doesn't seem to have been too tight, and certainly not tight enough to keep Margaret from plotting. Anyway, all I'm saying is, I'd like to have been a fly on the wall when Tom and Margaret got home. So for Richard... The 1483 rebellion was a bit like the curate's egg, good in parts. There were some positives. Although the folks who had rebelled were men of substance, it's notable that Buckingham was the only magnate involved. The rest were just part of the gentry, so that's a tick for Richard. Richard's core of support had held firm, and his progress through the regions had probably done some good in the Midlands which had held to him, and of course the North the North was rock-solid steady. There'd been no sign of any wavering, for example, from the Perses, who were now more than ever critical to Richard's regime. He might also feel good that he'd lanced a boil. It always feels good lancing a boil. There'd been a revolt, he'd crushed it, and removed or identified the baddies. However, he might also note that few of those aforementioned folks had actively come rushing to help either. The core of his support had come from those men he'd rewarded after his coronation. Francis Lovell, John Howard, the new Duke of Yorfolk, and his son, the Earl of Surrey. However, there were two majorly bad things, quite apart from the fact that people disliked him enough to want to kill him, which seems like a negative thing to me, on balance. One was that Henry was now officially the lead alternative contender to the throne, Although we've kept mentioning Henry, and all the proper historians tend to do the same to boot, it's really only because we know what happens later. At the time, the bloke was nobody, a loser, a schmuck. But now that is no longer true. The stew of rebellion Margaret had cooked up was smelling much better now that the spice of marriage to Elizabeth of York had been added to it. Not sure how much longer I should extend this metaphor, but Henry recognised that that marriage to Elizabeth of York had great power and he could build on that. 
For Henry, there was also a massive positive. Duke Francis of Brittany had supported his bid for power rather than handing him over to Richard in chains. That's a good thing for him. Also, Henry was beginning to look a lot more like a court in exile after the rebellion. He had a bunch of Woodvilles with him. Dorset, Edward Woodville, Richard Woodville. With him also a bunch of prelates, men with the quality of John Morton. And so, at Christmas 1483, a grand ceremony took place in Wren Cathedral in Brittany. And there the Woodvilles bent the knee to Henry and became his men, and recognised him as the true King of England. In return, Henry promised that if he were king, he'd marry Elizabeth of York. I have no idea what Elizabeth thought of the idea at the time. Not sure if anyone thought to ask. Maybe her mum? Possibly? Actually, it's a matter of great debate, obscured by a few tiny glimpses that some have interpreted as a great desire for marriage to Henry, or indeed a fervent support for Richard. Unlike so many things, the truth of Elizabeth's feelings over the next couple of years will probably always remain obscure. The big negative impact for Richard, though, was the people who had rebelled, because they were that exact group that he'd tried to court, that group he needed to administer and run the place, Edward IV's household men. It is difficult to know exactly why Edward IV's men rebelled. Maybe it was fear of losing their position under a new king, but Richard had made it very clear, and by his actions, that they need not fear that. Edward's men had kept their place. There had been no great influx of new men from the outside. And so, obviously, it's a very challengeable conclusion, because it seems rather altruistic, but it appears that for them the passing over of the princes was simply intolerable. The rumour of their death fired them yet more. Richard had failed to prove his legitimacy for these men. And so over a hundred men were attainted. Less than a third of them were then refused a pardon, as it happens, but despite that conciliatory approach, Richard now could not trust them enough to put them in a position of authority. And this gave him a problem. Who now did he appoint to run the shop? The answer was men from the north. Now Richard had been clever enough to realise the resentment that this was going to cause and he tried to avoid it, but equally now he just had no choice. And so land was redistributed from rebels to men from the north. Shrievelties and offices went with them. Lands of the attainted rebels were given out very quickly and therefore often illegally without proper legal investigation and action. Once again, just like with the Countess of Warwick and the Countess of Oxford, Richard proved pretty light-fingered when it came to the laws of property and when they stood in his way. Now, the, the Northern Plantation, as it became called, was an act of desperation. When we talked about the gentry a while ago, we talked about the importance of their connection with their locality, their roots about how much more important the local community was to the vast, vast majority of the lives of individuals, how far away and remote was the king. The community. The community was everything. The community was the lifeblood of these gentry families and their status within it. 
It was here that they drew their pride in their lineage and their status. Groups of families tightly knit, linked by blood and shared interests and heritage and gossip and rumour and all that sort of thing. Crowland recorded what Richard did with the land he gained from the rebels, all of which he distributed amongst his northern adherents, whom he planted in every spot throughout his dominions to the disgrace and loudly expressed sorrow of all the people in the south, who daily longed more and more for the hoped-for return of their ancient rulers, rather than the present tyranny of these rulers. The new men came to rule. That was the point. They came and superimposed themselves on communities where everyone knew each other and their histories, and the interplay of tensions and alliances, their local customs and liberties, how you did and did not behave. Now, have I bored you all with a very good article I read once about Afghanistan and the job of the British forces there? Controversial, I know, and in the most cowardly of ways, I make no comment about the rights and wrongs of all that sort of thing, but the article gave an example of an incredibly complicated feud, which was driven by relationships spread over several villages and families, spread over several generations, so complicated that an incomer could never hope to understand the source of the friction and conflict. And it's this situation, the same situation, that these men from the north walked into. Even today, it feels like it took 15 years for us to earn the membership card of the village where I live now. Maybe given decades, the new folk would have put down the right roots, but it needed time. And for the moment, it simply caused outrage and resentment. Last time, we talked about the claims Richard has to any success in building confidence that here in him, there was something worth fighting for. And certainly, Richard worked very hard, very hard indeed, to control the narrative of his reign. Whatever his religious feelings, Richard consistently made sure that his court had all the trappings of magnificence and celebration required of the medieval king. Notably so at the Christmas of 1484, where the dancing and celebrations attracted the grim disapproval of the Crowland Chronicle. And as we know here at the History of England, if a king didn't attract the grim disapproval of a monk, then that king just wasn't trying hard enough. Through his parliament, his religious endowments, his exhortations of the clergy to provide good leadership, his personal interest in justice, Richard never lost sight of the need to look and behave like a king, if people were to accept him as one. The context, though, was quite different to other usurpers, if I may use the phrase usurper, or at least if we compare Richard's situation with that of Henry IV and Edward IV in 1471. And it was different in three critical ways. Firstly, both Edward and Henry had taken action against kings who had ruled for many years and to varying degrees had demonstrated their unfitness to rule, whether through tyranny or through incompetence whereas Edward V and his brother were blameless miners. I have, in the most thoughtlessly cavalier fashion possible, refused as yet to discuss the case of who killed the princes in the tower. For the moment it's irrelevant. The rumour had already spread that they had indeed been killed, and many either chose to believe it, or anyway 
felt they shouldn't have been put aside as they had been. So, Richard had a much higher hill to climb in overcoming cynicism and outrage. And even Henry IV, in particular, had struggled to establish his legitimacy even in the face of many years of Richard II's tyranny. Secondly, neither Edward or Henry had a queen of the previous reigning and indeed popular reigning monarch sitting with her young defenceless family in sanctuary, a living, breathing reminder of the deep divisions. Now that absolutely had to be dealt with. And thirdly, both Henry IV and Edward IV had done away with their contending candidates, neither of whom had heirs to carry on the fight. But Richard now had a living, breathing contender in Henry Tudor, with support from other exiles and potentially a foreign government or two. He couldn't just concentrate on the business of government. He had to keep looking over his shoulder, because one day he knew Henry would be there with a whacking great two-handed sword, probably. So, on the first matter, his right to rule, he'd done pretty much all he could now through his Parliament in February 1484. Although he then went as far as to move Henry VI's body into St George's Chapel at Windsor. That's quite a radical step. But a cult had begun to grow up around the saintly Henry VI. The rule of thumb seems to be that bad kings make good saints with the possible exception of John. So Richard took the chance to look both gracious and to try and get some of that halo effect, if you'll pardon the pun. Richard turned his mind to the second problem then, the Queen, straight after his Parliament. There was more than one aspect to this. The obvious one was that it was a horribly obvious symbol of disunity, having the Queen in sanctuary. The second was that Richard was desperate enough to start thinking of reconciling as many of the Woodvilles as possible, probably with the greater aim of reconciling Edward IV's old household and affinity as well. OK. Upon these holy evangels of God, if the daughters of Dame Elizabeth Grey will come unto me out of sanctuary of Westminster, then I shall see that they be in surety of their lives and also not to suffer any manner hurt by any manner person, to be done by way of ravishment or defiling contrary to their wills, nor them or any of them in prison within the Tower of London or any other prison. Now this rather extraordinary oath was taken by Richard in March 1484 in front of the Mayor and Aldermen of London. Richard had apparently been sending a constant stream of messages to Elizabeth. Now, Thomas More claimed that Elizabeth by this stage knew that her sons had been killed, or strongly suspected they had, with graphic descriptions of her grief and feelings of guilt. But this time Elizabeth took the proffered hand of reconciliation from Richard, at least to the extent of leaving sanctuary at last, and she's attracted a lot of flack for doing so. If she did know that her sons were indeed dead and had been killed by Richard, how could she countenance reconciliation with the beast that had killed them? How could she put the rest of her brood in danger? Well, I have to say it's not a situation I would like to have been in or a decision I had to make. I should throw into the mix that in a few months' time in the Christmas of 1484, Elizabeth would earn the further criticism of the Crowland chronicler for allowing her daughters, and especially Elizabeth of York, 
to appear for the festivities with Richard and his Queen, wearing the same dresses and outfits with Queen Anne, taking part in the dancing and all that sort of thing. But look, it's a fascinating conundrum. If Elizabeth had been involved in agreeing a match between her daughter, Elizabeth, and Henry Tudor through Margaret Beaufort, if she was convinced her sons were dead, murdered at Richard's hands, then you have to say it's quite a decision to make. Surely she'd have sat tight and lit a candle for the success of Henry Tudor. From this, all sorts of conspiracy theories spring, hydra-headed. For example, it's been suggested that Richard had secretly spirited the princes abroad, and Elizabeth knew this. Or it's been taken as evidence that Elizabeth didn't know whether her sons were dead or not. Or, probably more than anything, it's been used as a stick to beat up Elizabeth as a good-time girl who just wanted back into the party and a nice life. But, but what a decision to make. Think of her daughters. What kind of life could they expect sat in sanctuary? Because Richard also promised at the same time to set her daughters up with good husbands. To quote, Put them in honest places of good name and fame, and them honestly and courteously shall see to be found and entreated, and to have all things requisite and necessary for their exhibition and findings as my kinswoman and that I shall marry such of them as now be marriageable to gentlemen born. Now there's an element of mealy-mouthedness going on in the whole oath. Note that Richard called Elizabeth Dame Elizabeth Grey, for example. And we're talking gentlemen here as potential husbands, whereas once those girls could have expected to marry the highest in the land, or indeed Christendom. But in those days, it was better than no marriage at all and Elizabeth surely owed that much to her daughters. And then finally, she would have calculated the risks involved. Firstly, there was no surety that sanctuary would be safe forever. The Duke of Exeter had discovered that to his cost when he was dragged out of there. And she'd know that Richard just could not afford another scandal. And indeed, he absolutely did do what he said, and he did start negotiations to get the girls married off. So whatever. It's impossible to judge, really, isn't it? Elizabeth made the decision she made. She disappeared from the record for the rest of the year, and we're not sure where her girls went either, but just possibly to Sheriff Hutton in Yorkshire. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But it also has to be said that despite the relative success of Richard's initial tour through the country and of his parliament, England, during the reign, was full of the signs of mistrust, rumour and suspicion. Richard was doing his absolute best to demonstrate that he was a credible king. To do that, he not only had to show he could govern, he had to wipe out the hangover of the events of 1483, and he had to do it in the context of the threat from Henry Tudor over the water. There is some evidence that he was actually courting Dorset, now over in Brittany with Henry. Think about that, courting Dorset. 
who he'd chased from the country, whose half-brothers he'd executed, whose mother he'd chased into sanctuary and generally bad-mouthed. Trying to get at least some of the Woodvilles back on side is surely a sign of the level of desperation that Richard felt. Rumours of dissent, treachery and danger kept raising their heads. In the West Country, two rebels were dealt with for sending money to Henry. In October 1484, John Devere, the die-hard Lancastrian, escaped from the castle of Ham near Calais, where he'd been imprisoned. He then returned to the castle to relieve the garrison, bringing a bunch of soldiers over to Henry's side in Brittany. As Richard prepared for possible invasion, his preparations betray a certain amount of distrust. So, for example, the gentry in all the shires were commanded to report directly to the magnates John Howard and Thomas Stanley and obey no other. Now, that might just seem like sensible organisation and preparation, but there is a message of distrust in there too, an implication that Richard did not entirely trust the normal local leaders of the shires to raise their men in times of trouble and come and support Richard. And of course none of this was helped by the groans of communities in the south seeing their natural leaders replaced by the plantation of northerners. Richard did what he could. He was ruthless in challenging and taking action where his new narrative of credible kingship, his desire to work for what was called then the common wheel, was challenged. He didn't let things pass. And his ruthlessness in so doing speaks of his desperate need. By way of example, let us speak, ladies and gentlemen, of William Collingbourne. Collingbourne was a member of the Wiltshire gentry, sort of over in the west-ish of England. He'd been a loyal servant of Edward IV, serving as sheriff of three counties in the 1470s. And as it happened, it was Cecily Neville that controlled that post. And then in 1484, Richard wanted to distribute some patronage and asked his mum, Cecily Neville, if his new chamberlain, Francis Lovell, could have the job. OK, fine. Annoying for Collingburn, without doubt. But then on the 18th of July, 1484, a bill appeared on the door of St Paul's and places throughout the city of London, which read, The cat, the rat and Lovell are dog, rule England under a hog. This famous piece of doggerel referred to Richard's most trusted and rewarded servants, William Catesby the cat, Richard Ratcliffe the rat, and of course Francis Lovell. And the hog was Richard, referring to his symbol of the white boar. Well, Richard was not having this message freely distributed. He had the perpetrator hunted down, and it turned out to be William Collingbourne. It appears to have also transpired that Collingbourne had spent £8, a not inconsiderable amount of money when a labourer earns something like £1 to £2 a year, to send someone over to see Henry Tudor in Brittany, urging him to lead a rebellion against Richard. Richard threw the book at him. Collingbourne was tried for treason with Francis Lovell himself at the helm. He was, unsurprisingly, convicted. And he was hanged, he was drawn and he was quartered. Now, corresponding with Henry was bad enough, but I suspect what worried Richard just as much was the tenor of the satire. He had to build a sense of positive progress, and this sort of thing just didn't help. As an aside, there are three main reasons for me telling you the story. One was the main one, Richard, and his control of the narrative of his reign. 
Secondly, the doggerel's really well known. It would be remiss of me not to tell you all about it. But the real reason is that there's a gag in there that deserves to be retold: a tale of medieval English sang-froid. Collingburn was hanged first. And if they liked you, they'd give you a good drop so your neck broke and all the other indignities would just happen to your body and you wouldn't be there anymore. But if they didn't particularly like you, and apparently Collingbourne hadn't made himself popular, then they did the job as it ought. So you waved about at the end of a rope for a while, kicking your legs desperately, and then they cut you down while you were still alive. And they cut off your privates, which apparently you can survive, drew out your entrails and burnt them on the fire in front of you. Normally by this time you would be long gone. But if it was done really well and quickly, it could be that when they reached for your heart, when they reached for your heart, you would still be alive. And so it was in Collingbourne's case. As the executioner reached out to cut out Collingbourne's heart, he looked up and said, Oh Lord, yet more trouble. Now for Saint-Foy, I dare you to find a better example. But put all this together, add his slightly unusual demand for an oath to his heir, Edward of Middleham, the constant rumours about the princes, the threat of invasion, the recent memory of Buckingham's rebellion, and you can see that Richard's throne in 1484 and 5 was floating on a sea of uncertainty and distrust. Richard's public proclamations against rebels, traitors and Henry were his attempt to discredit them, of course, undermined their support. But their tone is way over the top, absolutely cranked up to 11 in their vituperation. So listen to these examples. Firstly, in 1483 against Dorset, after Buckingham's rebellion. Dorset, Richard said, has many and sundry maids and widows and wives, damnably and without shame, devoured, deflowered and befouled. Uwek. Or this in April 1485. Divers seditions and evil persons in London and elsewhere enforce themselves daily to sow seeds of noise and slander against our person, to abuse the multitude of our subjects and alter their minds from us, some by setting up bills, some by spreading false rumour. In December 1484 and again in June 1485 in the face of invasion, Richard really pushed the boat out with a general proclamation. The results of a Henry Tudor victory were spelt out in less than positive terms, I think you could say. Every man, his life, livelihood and goods would be taken into his hands and there would ensue disinheriting and destruction of all the noble and worshipful blood of this realm for ever. Or maybe try if they do take power, to carry out the most cruel murders, slaughtering, robberies and disinheriting that was ever seen in any Christian realm. Whoa! So, in summary then, the general message was that Richard's advice was that Henry Tudor was on balance when all said and done, looking at it from all angles, a bad thing. Now, none of this could have helped reduce the temperature None of this can have helped put Richard in the light of a man in control of his future. You have to wonder if the tone was in the end counterproductive. It speaks of desperation and a man in something of a panic rather than calm control. 
When you read these, you can understand the sense of relief Richard is reported to have felt when Tudor did finally invade, and it does a lot to explain Richard's action in the final showdown. It sounds as though Richard was finding living under this particular sword of Damocles something of a trial, shall we say. It didn't help that Richard appeared to lack that most vital of attributes, luck. The relationship between Richard and his wife Anne Neville, and indeed Anne Neville's life, is something of a mystery. On the one hand, there's the daring do of her rescue by Richard from Clarence, but on the other hand, there is more than a suspicion of a helpless pawn in the politics of power. At very, very least, Anne Neville had a hard life, and it was to get significantly worse. In April 1484, Anne and Richard were at Nottingham, in the Midlands. And there a messenger arrived in haste from Midlam with dire news. Their young and only son, Edward, had died. The Crowland Chronicler was probably an eyewitness when the news arrived, and he wrote, You might have seen the father and mother almost out of their minds for a long time when faced with such sudden grief. The horror of such an event reaches down to us with these words. Richard at the time had been travelling north to prosecute war on Scotland, but the news stopped everything, and for a month Anne and Richard stayed at Nottingham in the midst of their pain. Medieval England being what medieval England was, it was quickly pointed out by Crowland and I have no doubt many others, that this looked horribly like the judgment of God. And no one failed to notice that this was also a brutal blow to Richard's dynastic ambitions, in the sense of not having a dynasty anymore. Richard didn't have time before the end of his reign to formally appoint a successor, but there seemed no prospect of Anne producing another heir. Nonetheless, at Christmas 1484, Richard did his very best to portray again the splendour of his court. Though in poor health, Anne entertained the Woodville girls, swapping clothes with Elizabeth of York. Crowland darkly muttered that, quote, far too much attention was given to dancing and gaiety. And these, quote, vain exchanges of clothing. But hey, monks weren't traditionally noted for their love of a good party, and Crowland surely misses the point. Richard had to behave like a king, and he wanted to demonstrate to Edward IV's old supporters and to the Woodvilles across the water that all was well again, between Plantagenet and Woodville. Richard's reign is festooned with rumour and innuendo and extraordinary events. Even at the Epiphany, there were remarkable whispers doing the rounds. Look, poor Anne, clearly not well, clearly unlikely to have another child. If anything happened to her, hey, Richard could remarry. Hmm, and look at Elizabeth of York. She's a looker, make no mistake, just 18. Her mother could hardly look at a bloke without getting pregnant. And I know it sounds daft, but well, if Richard married Elizabeth of York, his dynasty would have a cast-iron legitimacy once more. Edward IV's line, Richard's line, combined. Tell you what, that had really cut Henry Tudor's legs off to boot. Seriously, marry his niece. Quite clearly an utterly scurrilous idea, cooked up by later Tudor historians such as Virgil. And anyway, Richard had a queen, Anne. Let's go back to a more reliable observer, Crowland. In the course of a few days after this, the queen fell extremely sick, and her illness 
was supposed to have increased still more and more, because the king entirely shunned her bed, declaring that it was by the advice of his physicians that he did so. Why enlarge? That why enlarge is right up there in the most irritating lines in any chronicle in history. Someone at the time should have shouted, because 600 years later, David Crowther would like to know whether Richard killed his wife or not. The rumour mill was spinning like a mad thing. The rumours apparently reached across the channel and Virgil claimed that Tudor was, quote, pinched to the stomach at the thought of losing a substantial pillar in his claims to legitimacy, i.e. the opportunity to marry Elizabeth of York. And then on March the 16th, 1485, Anne died. And the rumours grew that Richard had poisoned her to allow him to marry Elizabeth of York, his niece that he'd whined around court about Anne's sterility, that he showed no sign of affection to Anne. And in fact, that Richard actively went to his closest supporters and floated the idea of marrying Elizabeth, his niece. I simply can't believe it. The Tudor version of events goes that Richard was knocked back by the likes of Catesby, receiving horrified and furious responses that he'd lose even the support of his northerners if he did so. He'd lose all credibility. Everyone would believe he'd usurped the throne for his own gain and murdered anyone in his way to do so. But I just can't believe Richard would be such a burke. I know it sounds trivial, but if I was planning to murder my wife and marry my niece, which for the avoidance of doubt I'm not, by the way, the last thing I'd do is go and telegraph it by treating my wife like a pariah. Richard would have to have been a blithering idiot to suppose that his remaining shards of his tottering, fragile credibility would survive marrying his niece for crying out loud. Marrying his niece in contravention of canon law and every kind of public opinion, papal dispensation or no papal dispensation. But in the Mercer's Company records of London, there is this record of the 30th of March, 1485, that Richard, quote, in the presence of many of his lords and many other people, showed his grief and displeasure, and said that it never came in his thought or mine to marry in such a manner wise. Richard had been forced to make an announcement, and on the 11th of April letters were sent to many towns ordering their corporations to also work to scotch these rumours that Richard was planning to marry his niece. Well, words fail me. Seriously, I could spend as many episodes as you like on Richard III and still never drain the swamp of controversy and opinion and guesswork. The elaborate work of historians and commentators and blokes in sheds studying shards of evidence that maybe Elizabeth herself carried a torch for her uncle. Or that Richard was clearly innocent because he'd started negotiations with Portugal to marry her off. None of them allow us to know anything for sure. None of these bits of evidence. The one thing we can, though, hold on to with absolute confidence was the fact that a king was forced to stand up in public and swear to the world that he wasn't planning to marry his niece, which is absolutely extraordinary. Nothing could display with more clarity the suspicion, distrust, lack of credibility Richard faced. I don't like to labour the point, obviously, but seriously, can you imagine how low his public reputation must have sunk to have done such a thing? An anointed monarch. Appointed by God. No, I'm not going to marry my niece. There was just one thing that would put an end to all of this. To meet the only viable alternative for the throne 
and demonstrate God's purpose by slaughtering him on the field of battle. Scarcely can any man have ever wanted an invasion more than Richard III in April 1485. Which is what we'll cover next time. One of the most famous battles in English history, the Battle of Bosworth. And that, gentle listeners, for the moment is that. Thank you very much for all your comments, all your donations, and especially thank you all for listening. So have a great week and see you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.